So this week, over the New Year's holiday, I had the opportunity for the first time in my life, and maybe it's because I'm just a boy from Georgia, but I played chess for the first time in my life. My daddy taught me to play checkers, but not chess. I knew nothing about chess. I didn't understand how chess works. But with the help of their dad, my eight-year-old and six-year-old nephew taught me chess on New Year's Eve. And my nephews defeated me in chess on New Year's Eve. It was humbling. It was pretty exciting for them. But as I understood chess, I got this picture in realizing that chess is all about capturing the king, pursuing the king, trying to trap the king. And you've got all these other pieces on the board at your disposal, but you're trying to put the king in check, it's called. And when you're in check, that means you are attacking the king. I've got a move where I can take the king. But what's crazy is you have to tell the other player, your opponent, I've got your king in check. I have a, a line of sight to attack and to kill your king. I'm coming after your king. So then the other player can either move the king where you can't attack them or they can take the other pieces on the board and sacrifice them and put them in the way or protect the king every time that you say, check, I'm coming after the king. But as I played Elias, specifically my eight-year-old nephew, I realized very quickly into my first chess match that this is over. Like, he has got me. I know that eventually he's going to get my king. It's going to move from check to checkmate, which checkmate is you have no other options, no other moves, Every move results in the capture of the king. And as I looked at my pieces starting to dwindle, starting to go away, and his pieces were all still on the board, I knew this is hopeless. He's going to get my king. But he kept saying check, and I kept moving, and he kept saying check, and I kept protecting. And I just drew it on and on and on. I'm like, I'm not going to give up. I absolutely will not give up. I'm going to make him every move. Come after me, come after me, and come after me. Until finally he cornered me. And I had no move left. And he just puts his piece across, knocks my king over, and he walks away. And I don't know where he learned all of this boasting, but he's raising his hands. He's excited. He might have seen that in his father. I don't don't know. But it was pure joy as he captured my king. And for me, I finally, with nothing left to do, no moves left, I finally surrendered. 
That's what I want us to see in Jonah. Jonah had been running from God. Okay? Jonah was a prophet of God. He had to know the God he had served. This God was going to eventually capture him. He was pursuing him. He was after him. He chased him on a ship through a storm. He was coming for him. And Jonah knew. You know he knew. Ultimately, God will corner me. God will get me. This is going to end for me. But Jonah kept taking moves and Jonah kept making more moves and Jonah kept running away every time that God would put him in check. And then ultimately, as we saw last week, Jonah was swallowed up. Checkmate. No other moves. No other options. God had him and God had cornered him. It was over. It was over. And as we talked about, as we read that story, or as the original readers read that story, we should see that and be like, it's through, he's dead, no more for Jonah. But with God, the story is not over. What appears to be destruction, what appears to be this certain death for Jonah, when he is swallowed up, actually results in rescue. As you move to the end of chapter 2, you see that he's vomited onto dry land. And we looked at this and we wanted to see Jonah, we wanted to see uh, this that was occurring and this story before us as to what the prophets were speaking. The prophets have been speaking to Israel and now here's a prophet, a story is being told about this prophet and we get to see it lived out. The prophets have been speaking to Israel that if you continue in your disobedience, you continue in your running from God, if you don't deal with that, there's going to be consequence. You're going to be exiled. I will exile you to Babylon. But in the end, I'm God. I love you. I'm caring for you. And I will rescue you. I will restore you. And so that's what the prophets have been speaking. And then we see Jonah living out this disobedience and then we see Jonah swallowed up literally into exile taken away he was a demonstration an illustration of what the prophets had been speaking but from this place of exile that we see at the beginning of chapter 2 or the end of chapter 1 right he's swallowed up he's in the belly of the fish for 3 days and 3 nights when we get to chapter 2 verse 10 he spit out to dry land there's rescue there's restoration for Jonah and so what happens between this place of exile and this occurrence of rescue what what occurs during that time what what changes in Jonah what changes in God's pursuit between his death his absolute impending death swallowed up and his gracious rescue what happens between verse 17 of chapter 1 and verse 10 of chapter 2 what happens what happens guys what happens while he's here anybody know he prays Jonah finally 
He didn't pray when God was chasing him in a storm. The captain, this non-religious captain, urges him, please come up to the, to, the, to the deck of the ship and pray to your God. Jonah refuses. He resists. He will not pray. But God continues to pursue him, continues to pursue him. And in this place, confined and trapped with nowhere else to go, Jonah finally prays. And I think it's interesting that in this story, as you read in the scriptures, for the three days and the three nights, the Jonah is inside the belly of this fish. The author does not describe anything else about the environment. He does not describe anything else that occurs. He does not say, talk about anything except this prayer from Jonah. That's it. That's all that happens. That's all we see. That's all that's communicated as Jonah is swallowed up and before he is vomited out. That's it. It's a turning point in the story. And it's important for us to consider what occurs, what happens between those two points in the story. And so remember the purpose of Jonah, the purpose of this story is to understand God and to see ourselves in Jonah. And so what can we learn about ourselves through Jonah's response after being swallowed up? And what can we learn about God through Jonah's prayers? through his prayer in this place. Okay, that's what I want us for the next two weeks. Uh, this sermon and the next time that I preach, we're going we're gonna to look at that. Like, what can we learn from God through Jonah's prayer? And what can we learn about ourselves and our own response and our own perspective about God? When we are in a place, when we have, in a place where we feel trapped, in a place where we feel like we have no options. And so I want to read Jonah 2, verse 1 through 10. Uh, we'll read it in its entirety in English and then in Spanish. And then today we're going to focus on verse 1 through 4. It says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers, they swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So as we look to understand God and see ourselves in Jonah, we're going to see that Jonah cries out for help. He cries out for help to a present God. And then Jonah turns towards a powerful God. 
So first he cries out for help to a present God. Look at verse 2. It says, in his distress, in this desperate and helpless situation, Jonah finally prays. He finally cries out. Jonah does not speak a word to God until this point in the story. But finally, in this place, he cries out. As you read through the story in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, he goes down, 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 down. Jonah's situation is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And now he's been swallowed up. He describes himself as being deep in the realm of the dead. His life from his perspective, it's over. It's done. This is Sheol in the, in the original language. This is the land of the dead. He's, he's gone. He's done. It's over. His life is through. And in that place, with no move to make, no options, he does not ask for assistance. God, could you just help me out here? I, I just need some help. I've got a plan, but I just need your help to, to, to make my plan come to fruition. I've got a way to escape, God, but can you just help me escape? That's not what he says. That's not what he does. He doesn't ask God for a discernment. God, can you give me a plan and what I should do to get out of this situation? He doesn't do that. Because he's at the end of himself. His life is over. He cries. He cries out for help. And I think that's difficult for us. Because in our culture, crying is weakness. Someone starts crying. We feel uncomfortable. Someone starts crying. Right, Tim? Tim doesn't like emotions. Right? And the crying is this overwhelming outward demonstration of my emotions inside. And you're going to show that to everybody else? It's one thing to feel it, but for everybody else to witness it and see it? Uncomfortable. Weakness. Right? That's what our culture tells us. I can remember my father crying twice in my entire life. Two times. And I lived with him every day for 23 years, right? And two times I remember him crying. One time when we buried a dog. And one time when my grandfather died right there with me and my dad. That's all. That's it. He did not cry. I never saw it. And you guys make fun of me, right? Especially for me or, or Trent. A big crybaby, right? When he preaches. You know, it's a joke, right? It's something we make fun of. We like to laugh about. Like, you know it's okay, but, but we're going to give each other a hard time about it when you cry like that and cry in front of others and you appear weak and you appear helpless. We don't do that. So why would we cry out? Why do we cry? I've had four kids as infants and then two more at 13 months. 
And I learned very quick, even as a dad, that babies, infants, have different cries. Sometimes they whine, sometimes they're complaining, but when they cry, right, when they are upset, you know it. They scream and they yell and they're in their crib and you've got to go address them. You've got to go to them. They need something desperately. And I remember learning that they were going to cry that way because of one of three things. They were hungry. They were tired. Or they had pooped or peed themselves. All right. Those are the three things. I'm hungry, I'm tired, or I need a change. And when those things were the reality for them, when they felt those things, what does a helpless, unable to do anything for themselves, infant who's laying in the crib and can't even roll over yet, what do they do? They cry. They cry for help. I am dependent on someone else. I'm helpless and desperate. But we don't believe that we're helpless and we're desperate. That's not my reality day in and day out. I do not like to acknowledge that I'm helpless and that I'm desperate. There's always something I can do. There's always another move for me. There's always a response that I have or a way that I can protect myself. I can do something, do something, do something, right? When I feel helpless. I know it might not be helpful, but at least I can do something even though I know it's not helping the situation, but I'm going to do something. Because I don't want to acknowledge my helplessness. My dependence on anyone. Not even God. That's our very nature. The core of our sin nature is that we desire to be independent. I don't need God. I don't need you. I don't need anyone. That's at the heart of our sin. I will control and be over myself. And so we don't find ourselves in these situations very often. Where we feel helpless. Where we feel desperate. Where all we can do is cry out. So I want to give you an example. A silly example. This week, during lunch, I can grab lunch or bring my lunch and instead of taking that time to eat at my office at the hospital, I can hurry to the gym really close to my work at 24 hour fitness I can go inside I can change my clothes I can get on the treadmill I can finish the treadmill and if I've got enough time and if everything goes right then I can take five minutes in the whirlpool then get out of the whirlpool and I, I'm in my trunks my swimming trunks my flip flops and my towel and at that point all my stuff is in my locker but I don't want to hang my swimsuit in the Showers and have to keep up with it. So I'll go back to my locker and I'll put my swim trunks in my locker so it's me and my towel and my sandals. Okay? That's it. And I go to the showers. Soap's already there. 
It's great. Everything I need. Nothing extra. So this week, I think it was Monday, I come out of the shower after my workout, after I've been in the whirlpool for five minutes, me, my towel, and my sandals. And I walk back to my locker, and I look up at my locker, and my purple master lock lock is not on my locker. My locker, the lock is gone. And then I open the locker and the locker is empty. I'm there with my sandals, with my towel, wet in the middle of the locker room and I don't have car keys, I don't have a phone, I don't have clothes, I don't have underwear, I don't have other shoes, I don't have anything except my sandals and my towel and what I came into this world with. I stood there like this. My mind starts racing. I feel this sick feeling in my stomach. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm in, I'm in Westlake, Thousand Oaks, 45 minutes from home, at work, and I'm on my lunch hour away from my office with my sandals and towel. No options. I was helpless. I was dependent. I was going to have to ask in humility and independence someone for help. And as I came to grips with that, standing in the middle of the locker room, I realized I was standing in front of the wrong locker. And, and I got this moment of hope, and then I walked over and I went back in the next cubby of lockers, and there was my beautiful purple master lock lock. And I was saved. But for that moment, I felt helpless. That's silly. And I don't feel that way very often. But I would tell you for the last 20 months, since we've been doing fostering, I've become more and more aware of my helplessness. Okay? I am a white man with privilege. Okay? That's my place in the world. I can talk to people and get things done and take notes and write reports. I can get things accomplished. And as we've been put in this system, this broken system of fostering, it doesn't matter what I do. And as a foster parent, no one wants to listen to us. No one gives us any credibility, even though we're the ones that are with these kids the most and more than anyone else. Your voice, you're pretty much silenced. And there's nothing you can do. And I have tried for 20 months to do and to do and to do and to do. And to figure out, well, what else could I do? I just want to communicate what's going on. Someone needs to consider this situation. Why won't anyone listen to me? What else can I do? I need to do. And as I studied this, 
God saying, why don't you cry Why don't you come to the end of yourself? You have no moves to make. You are captured. You are trapped. Just say checkmate. Just resign. Just let go. And cry out to me. Cry out to me for these children. Cry out to me for their future. Cry out to me for this family. Cry out to me. Because you are helpless. You are dependent. You can't do anything. That's my reality. And that feels awful. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to experience that. But that's where God has placed that's where he's placed us. And so when was the last time that you truly felt desperate? Absolutely helpless. You were in a place where you couldn't do anything, anything, anything but cry out to God. Where He was your only option. And what's amazing in this story is that God is a present option. Jonah doesn't cry out to a distant, far-off God. But he cries to a God who is with him in his distress. In this desperate and helpless situation, Jonah finally becomes aware of God's personal presence with him. He's gone down, 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 down in the story. He's finally swallowed up and confined in the belly of a fish. And in that place, in that mess, Jonah realizes God is present with me here. I've run and run and run. And yet here I am with nowhere else to go. And He is present with me. And it says that He listens. He listens to our cries. He answers us when we are truly desperate, when we are truly dependent for His help. And I would say that whether it's a mess of your own making, something that you did, your sin, your issues, or someone else around you that has spilled into your life, it doesn't matter where the mess came from and why you are helpless and why you are dependent. There can be multiple reasons for your situation, but God is present there. And He listens and He answers. And that is our reality. That's our spiritual reality. Even when we don't feel weak, even when we don't feel helpless, that's our reality. So we need to get over ourselves. 
we need to get to the end of ourselves. We need to get trying to fix ourselves and fix our situations and fix our hearts and fix our feelings and fix our relationships and cry out to God. Because you are helpless to do it. I am helpless to do it. I am dependent on God to restore and rescue me in all of those situations. He has to do it. And I believe if we understood that reality, we would cry out regularly. Not a couple times in my life. But we would cry out and we would cry out and we would cry out and we would cry out. And the people around us in this neighborhood would be like, oh, those people at Livingstones are always crying out to God. They're so helpless. They're so dependent. They're always crying out to God. Can't they do anything for themselves? They just keep crying out to God and crying out to God. Now God, as we'll see, will ask us to participate. Okay? He rescues Jonah and Jonah has to participate. Okay? We participate. But we need to start and remain in this place of crying out. It doesn't start. We don't cry out to be saved and then we don't need God anymore. Right? Salvation is a process. We begin at a point. We continue through it and we will finish. But we have to cry out to God when we begin. We have to cry out to God as we continue and cry out to God as we approach the finish. We are desperate. We are helpless. We are dependent on Him to save us. I want us to be a people who cry I'm done. Yo, por mí mismo, ya terminé, ya acabé, llegué a un punto que ya final. Let's cry out. Lloremos, clamemos a Dios. And as it explains here, when we cry out, because He's with us, all we have to do is turn towards Him. If you look in verse 3 and verse 4, it's interesting that it says Jonah is praying to God. He says, you, the you is God, you hurled me. And it says, your waves and breakers. He's, he's God, this is, you did this to me, God. And we know if you go back in the story, it's actually Jonah asked the sailors to throw him over. But now Jonah is saying, you hurled me into the sea. And he describes your waves and breakers. You're, you're the God of the dry land and of the sea. You're in this. And I think it's important for us to understand that Jonah is not pointing a finger at God. He's not blaming God or thinking that God is the cause of his mess. But his perspective in this place with no other options is that, God, you are over my mess. You may not have caused this mess, but you have authority over my mess. And that's a very different response. But in this place, Jonah 
realize that's what he said to the sailors. Like, I worship. I'm Hebrew. I worship the God of heaven. Right? He made the, the dry land and the sea. He is over all of this. And finally, confined and trapped, he realizes that. And he's like, God, you have power over my mess. You're the only option in my mess. Think about that for a minute. That's the God that is present with us and available to us in our mess. No matter how far you've run, no matter how long you've been running, no matter what is in your past, no matter what is in your present, God is there with you, present with you, in your mess, and He has authority over your mess. He's the God of heaven that created the dry land and the sea. Do you not think that He can intervene in your mess? No piense por ningún minuto que Dios no puede intervenir en su caos y la situación que usted está. And all that is described, all that we have to do, is look towards Him, look to His presence. It says there in verse 4, Yet I will look again to your holy temple. The temple is where God's presence dwelt, right? Where God lived. And for us now, the presence of God is Jesus Christ. That He came from heaven to be present with us. That He continues with us. That He is there with us. That He is faithful to us in every mess, in every situation as we are helpless and dependent He is available for us to cry out to and it says all that we need to do is turn towards Him to look to Him it doesn't say get your life straight uh, live well for a few weeks or a month and, and do everything right and then come to God it doesn't say come up with a plan and a strategy of how to get out your mess and then bring that plan and strategy to God. It says just turn towards God wherever you are, wherever you're at, whatever the situation, just look to Him. That's all that you have to do. Because He is present and He is waiting and He is available. And He wants to help. He wants to intervene. He wants to rescue us. And He will rescue us. You can be rescued right now. As I read a little more about chess, at any point, when you feel that victory is hopeless, you can resign. Okay? And really, when there's professionals playing, they can see... When professionals play, they can see so many steps ahead. They're like, I know, there's no options, and I'm not going to stay here and, and be chased around the board and be humiliated. I'm just going to resign. It's over. There's no hope. I'm done. You and I do not have to wait 
until we're captured. We don't have to wait until we're in checkmate. I'm telling you now, you cannot run away and escape. Resign. Resign now to the reality that you actually don't have moves. You can run, you can make multiple moves, but at the end, you're going to be captured. In the end, God is pursuing you. So stop and just resign. And admit that you are helpless, admit that you are dependent, and cry out to God. That's what God desires. And He will pursue us until the point that that is our reality. We're a helpless mess. But that's not the end of the story. We have a present and personal God that has power to save us. And we can cry out to Him and we can look towards Him. So for us, we cry out to Jesus, we look towards Jesus, because He is present, He is personal, and He has the power to save us. And so that's what we're going to do right now. As we finish, as we finish our time together, and as we end the service, we're going to take communion together. Because I want us to come before and look at, look towards Jesus Christ. I want us to look at His body that is broken for us. I want to look at His blood, this promise made to us that gives us forgiveness, that promises to us that we are a part of His family. That we would look at that, that we would look away from our mess and we would look at Him, this God that is present with us and waiting to rescue us and continue with us. We have to remember, we have to come back, we have to look to Him. And so I'm going to ask, as, uh, as I step down, I want you to come up. The bread and the cup is here. If you'll come up and, and, and pursue that, take that for yourself, and then return to your seats. And I want you to wait at your seats. And, and during that time, uh, Ashley's going to just play uh, some music for us. And I want you to take time to cry out. Look at Jesus. Look towards Him. Reflect on Him. Understand your situation and cry out. And I want to give you freedom to cry out however you want to cry out. Okay? We're people who cry out. So cry out however you feel comfortable or uncomfortable crying out. But during that time, we'll just sit at our seats, look at Jesus, and cry out to Him. Knowing you're dependent, knowing you're helpless. And He has provided rescue.